Beloved saints, this is our God's word to us this morning. Uh, Let us give our attention to it. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Ituria and Traconitus and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. The word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. And the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn." but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. So ends the reading of God's word. Uh, Let us pray that God would bless his time, our time in his word. Most gracious Lord, our hearts are prone to wander, our minds are slow to understand We are not by nature people of your word, and so we ask 
that you would be among us, that you would speak to hearts, that you would illumine minds, that you would give us ears to hear your most holy truth. Amen. I'd like to ask those at home on Zoom to mute your microphones, please. Brian, maybe you can come and just turn the volume down. Thanks. Blessings and curses. Eh, That might have something to do with our passage. Baptism. It's one of those subjects that, if we're honest, brings division within the church. You have infant Baptists. You have believer Baptists. You have entire denominations named after people's stance on baptism. And if we're honest, why not? Let's be honest today. We can get quite emotional about the issue. We can say unkind and uncharitable things about those who disagree with us. And so we sometimes run into two temptations. One is to avoid the subject altogether, not to, to just not talk about it, or to only talk about our differences. In fact, I think one of the great travesties of the church is that we tend to talk more about how we baptize, the mode of baptism, whom we baptize, the recipients of baptism. We talk about these things more than the message of baptism, what it means. And if we come to our passage today, it will not allow us to do these things. It will not allow us to avoid or ignore the subject of the meaning, the message of baptism. Neither will it let us get bogged down in the questions of how and whom. In fact, if we are to be truly honest, baptism is not even the main subject of our passage. Okay, pastor, so why did you name the sermon the message of baptism? Well, because baptism... Is, is meant in our passage to illustrate or highlight the different parts of John the Baptist's message. It, it, it re-speaks, it proclaims, it highlights and, and uh, uh, underlines and underscores his message. And what's amazing is there are actually three different baptisms in our passage, three different baptisms, but when we look at them together, they work together to to form a a bigger, a more complete picture of baptism. My my hope as we look at this passage this morning is to just show you something along these lines. Baptism is a visible picture of the gospel message, namely that through Jesus Christ, peace with God is available to those who truly and humbly repent. That, that's what baptism is. It's, it's a visible picture of that message, that, that peace with God is available through Jesus Christ if you would repent of your sins. That's really what I want to show us. And to look at this, we, we're probably going to go a little bit out of order. We're going to first talk about John's announcement of coming judgment what he will call a baptism of fire. And then we're going to look at his call to repentance uh, in light of that judgment and why those who repented submitted to baptism 
And then finally, we want to briefly look at the end there where Jesus himself submits to baptism by his cousin John and see what it is that makes forgiveness possible. And that's, that's where we want to head. So we want to look at those, those three things uh, this morning. Now, there are some statements about judgment in our passage that are really uh, quite sobering. John was out, we're told in verse 2, he was in the wilderness and he was preaching. And many people were coming to him and they were listening. And, but look how he responds to some of them. Verse 7, he calls them uh, a brood or literally children of vipers. And he questions why they've come. For John, it's not enough that they're there. He wants to know why they're there. Are they simply following the crowd because it seems like the popular thing to do? Or have they come because they grieve over their sin? Have they come so that they can truly escape the wrath of God? Do they understand that they deserve God's wrath? He says that that God is about to bring judgment and he's going to cast every worthless thing into a fire that is unquenchable and burns forever, verses 9 and 17. But perhaps the scariest thing that he says is that their heritage as Jews, as as descendants and children of Abraham, won't save them when judgment comes. He says, Do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. In other words, it doesn't matter who your parents are. It doesn't matter the the color of your skin. It doesn't matter the, the level of your education. It doesn't matter how much money you have. It doesn't matter if you're free or slaves. When God comes in judgment... People will have one question to answer. Have you kept God's commandments perfectly? John says when Jesus comes, judgment is coming with him. And John's job is to prepare the people for that coming. His job is to level the field. He's he's like a a farmer preparing for the sowing of the seeds. He's he's to make sure that every every hill is knocked down, every valley filled. He's there to make sure that everyone understands that social status, family pedigree, and wealth are neither an asset nor a hindrance, that they are all level and equal before God. And to highlight this, John says that Jesus will baptize with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 16. And fire is a fitting description for baptism because it is a picture of judgment. The flood of Noah in 1 Peter is called a baptism. And then in 2 Peter we're told that that flood was really a picture of the final judgment on the last day when the world is consumed by fire. And so baptism of fire refers to what is warned about in verses 9 and 16 when when the fruitless trees and the chaff will be gathered up and thrown into an unquenchable fire. 
God's infinite wrath and judgment are a baptism of fire. And this is why Jesus uh, refers to uh, his, ba- his death on the cross as a baptism, where he undergoes fiery judgment. But there's another side of the baptism that Jesus brings. Remember, it's not just that he will come with a baptism of fire, but of the Holy Spirit as well. He calls the baptism of the Holy Spirit, uh, or he, he describes that not as a painful judgment, but as a joyous harvest where, where the wheat is, is gathered up and brought in to the barn so that another year of life may be enjoyed. This is good news. And so while judgment is a major theme in our passage, it's not the only theme. There's hope. Hope of salvation. There is another way, a way of escaping judgment. And that's why John has come. John came preaching what he calls a baptism of repentance. And this is not the baptism... Uh, that Jesus brings on the last day unto eternal death, but it is related. There's a picture of that in John's baptism, a picture of that judgment. In other words, the two are connected, but they are not identical. This is something that he was doing out in the wilderness of Judea. This is why he's called John the Baptist, because, well, he was baptizing. It's called a baptism of repentance, because it was attached to his message of repentance. He warned that God's judgment was coming, a judgment pictured in baptism. And he told his hearers that their only hope was to repent. The only way to experience forgiveness was to totally own what they had done. No excuses. No blame shifting. No playing down the severity of what they had done. No claiming that it wasn't a big deal. No excuses that that they didn't mean to. They had to accept their guilt and to acknowledge that they fully deserved God's infinite wrath and punishment. And that's why baptism made so much sense as a sign for what he was preaching. Because it underscored what they were saying when they repented. They they took a picture of God's perfect wrath upon themselves. And as they did, they were saying, this is what I deserve for my sin. It's only when people are willing to accept this that they're willing to ask for mercy. Who would be willing to take a sign of God's judgment to themselves if they weren't willing to take full responsibility for their sin? And this is why baptism is a perfect picture of repentance for those who are coming out to him. And they're mostly Jews. And the message couldn't have been any clearer. It's not enough to be a descendant of Abraham. We all stand guilty before God. We all need mercy. And to drive this message home, even deeper, John says, 
bear fruits keeping with repentance. Can we just be clear on something here? Repentance is not saying you're sorry. It's good to say you're sorry. But that's not repentance. Repentance is truly being sorry. Grieved. Ashamed of how you have acted. Repentance truly, sincerely desires to change course. Actual repentance leads to a change of behavior. Otherwise, it's just words. And John will have none of that. He tells them, you say you're sorry, prove it. Bear fruit. This is what the church is called to look for in those who claim to be Christians and they want to join the church. This is what the church must demand of people who have been under discipline and say they're repentant. Fruit shows us whether or not the words spoken are sincere. So what does fruit look like? Good question. I'm glad you asked. Because those listening to John had the same question. What do we do? What does that look like? And the first thing John emphasized was generosity toward others. If you have two tunics... Give to someone who has none. Do the same thing with your food. You see, a sinful heart is fundamentally a selfish heart. The three favorite words of the sinful heart are me, me, me. A repentant heart is a generous heart. Proof that you love God is is demonstrated in how you treat others. I think it was Mike Horton, or maybe he was quoting somebody, he said, uh, God doesn't need your good works, your neighbor does. The way we show God our love is by loving God's people. Remember what James said, how can you claim to love God and curse man who's made in God's image? Or as Jesus would say, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not show kindness to the least of the brothers? And generosity, beloved, is not limited to finances. Your time, your energy, hospitality, your service are all things that God calls you to be generous with. I mean, we might add a Sunday school series on that uh, last spring. Repentance is a visible change of direction. Tax collectors were known for collecting more than was due and lining their pockets because they could throw anybody who didn't pay their taxes into jail and so they could demand more than they had the right to. John says if you're truly repentant to God, you'll stop stealing from your neighbor. As Ephesians says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands that he might have something to share with those in need. Soldiers were known for their intimidation, threats, and extortion. And really, isn't that the story of history? Those with power oppressing and abusing those without. And John says, if you love God, 
you'll protect, you'll advocate for those who are weaker than you. You will not abuse or exploit them. And this isn't the first time God has said this. Remember what he said through the prophet Micah. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God. In other words, repentance is not hard to determine. Because when repentance is genuine, it's it's easy to see. Our problem is that we hear people say they're sorry and then we strain our necks looking for evidence. But a humble and a contrite heart is easy to identify because it doesn't blame others. It accepts consequences. And it makes progress towards change. I didn't say it's perfect, but it makes progress towards change. A repentant heart never says, I said I'm sorry, can we move on? All of this is to say that what God looks for is a changed heart. He's not interested in your nationality, your background, that you can trace your lineage to, to Abraham or King David. Did you notice that John speaks to soldiers? Most of them were probably Romans, not Jews. And yet the message here is, is if they repent... God will call them his own. God's not interested in your popularity or your social standing, how many likes you get on your Facebook post. He spent his time with those who were hated, those who were neglected, those who were outcast. He spoke with tax collectors, and they were hated by everyone. But if they repent, if, if a tax collector repents, God calls him his own. He's not interested in your wealth, whether you have two tunics or none. It doesn't matter. It's how you handle the gifts you've been given that shows your heart. And I think that scares us. Because we don't like talking about our hearts. We'd rather open our wallets than open our hearts. We don't want to surrender. We don't want to admit that we have no bargaining chips. We don't want to be at the mercy of another. But that's the only hope. It's it's through repentance that we experience the forgiveness of sins, verse 3. He came preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It's the only way, verse 7, to escape the wrath to come. That's what John's baptism was all about. This is the message it underlined. It was a picture of God's judgment on the last day. And to willingly take onto yourself that baptism was to acknowledge that you deserve a baptism of fire. It was to acknowledge that your only hope is mercy. That's why, it's a conf- that's why baptism is a fitting companion to repentance. But we're still left asking, how? How does repentance 
lead to forgiveness? How could repentance erase a debt? It can't simply make all your sin disappear. It acknowledges your sin, but it can't make it disappear. Something is still missing. And the first clue to the answer to that question is where all of this takes place. We're told that the word of God came to John in the wilderness. The wilderness was the place of exile and banishment, of of danger. It's where the bandits and the wild animals were. It's where the unclean lepers were sent to Rome. The wilderness was not a place of blessing. It was a place of cursing. And that makes it the perfect place to repent. Like baptism, it was a picture of what we deserve To leave the safety of the city and to venture into the dangerous wilderness to be baptized requires a serious desire to repent. But look at Isaiah, I'm sorry, look at verse 4, quoting Isaiah. We see that the wilderness is where the playing field is leveled so that the Lord can come and all flesh can see salvation. Centuries earlier, God revealed that he would send John in advance so that the Lord could come into the wilderness, into the place of cursing and death, in order that he might bring salvation. And so Jesus comes to John in the wilderness, and it's there that he was baptized. But but why? If, If everything we've seen about baptism is true, why would the Lord of glory, who knew no sin, be baptized? I mean, he had nothing to repent for. He didn't need forgiveness. He gives forgiveness. Why? Why would one who need not repent, who has no danger of the fires of hell, submit to baptism? Well, by submitting to baptism, Jesus was highlighting why he came. He came to submit to the fires of God's wrath on the cross so that he might pay the debt of those who would repent and that he might forgive their sins. See, forgiveness comes at a cost. He would later call his death on the cross his baptism. We're going to see that in chapter 12. The baptism in our passage revealed the price he was willing to pay to purchase forgiveness, to purchase peace, for his people. And at the moment he was baptized, the the Holy Spirit descends like a dove. And that takes us right back to the flood of Noah, which again is called a baptism. (laughs) The dove, after the judgment, was an indicator that peace had been accomplished. And through his death, through suffering the fires of judgment and wrath, Jesus purchased the right to give the Holy Spirit to those who come to him in repentance, to give them peace, not judgment. The Holy Spirit gives eternal life to those who receive him. Jesus was baptized with fire so that he might baptize those who repent with the Holy Spirit. This is why he came. And this is what his baptism 
in the wilderness by his cousin John anticipates. Baptism is a, is a robust sign. It's a picture of judgment and a picture of salvation. It's a sign of repentance and a call to repentance. And this is why those who repented were baptized. It was, it was a sign of their repentance, and that's why their households were baptized as a call to repentance. We, we have seen so much today, and yet we have not exhausted baptism. We've scratched the surface. That's how God's signs are. A robust and profound Baptism can be a sign of eternal wrath, a sign of repentance, and a picture of how salvation and peace with God is accomplished. And yet it's something that each of us experiences only once. But there's another sign, and it carries much of the same imagery. A picture of God's wrath, what we deserve a picture of Jesus' death, the price he was willing to pay, a picture of forgiveness and peace and communion and fellowship. But we have the privilege of observing that sign, not just once, but each time we gather for worship. It teaches us that repentance, then, isn't just a one-time thing. See, if all we had was baptism, we'd think that, ba- that repentance happens once at the beginning of the Christian life and then we're done. The Lord's Supper reminds us that we repent when we come to Jesus and we repent every day after that. It reminds us that repentance is a lifestyle. It reminds us that we have peace with God through the forgiveness of sins, not because we are worthy but because of the mercy of God given to those who own their sin and ask for grace and forgiveness. And please join me in prayer. Almighty God, you know us. You know our sins. You know our failures. You know our tendency to self-justification. And yet you do not judge us as our sins deserve because you sent your son into the wilderness to suffer a baptism of fire, not for what he deserved, but for what we deserve. So teach us to own our sin and to not just repent in word, but to bring forth the fruit of repentance. And teach us to know the comfort of belonging to the one who has made peace between heaven and earth. May the name of Jesus Christ be praised forever. Amen.